start out saying our culture and our society as we know it is decaying. Our culture is decaying. And um, so throughout centuries, family and community, it has meant something. But now pleasure means everything. Pleasure is the biggest idol, the number one God in America. Um, pleasure is what we seek. Uh, we spend all of our time, our resources, our money uh, chasing new technologies uh, constantly with noise and with music pouring into our ears. We can't stand silence. We don't have time for God. There always has to be something in front of us. Facebook, uh, TV, movies stimulating us. We can't stand silence with God. We can't stand our own minds. And this isn't how God designed us to be. Um, this isn't how our bodies are designed to be. But pleasure is our number one idol, the thing that we want most. Um, and God is getting shoved out. And to illustrate, uh, just to show that pleasure and seeking pleasure is not how we're designed, I can give an easy example. Um, you see, for me, going to Six Flags, it's still, it's fun, it's exciting. But for the person who lives right next to it, who has the season pass, it's not exciting anymore. You sit there and you sit there and you sit there in the same pleasure and it's not fun or exciting or stimulating anymore. He's, that person has to find more and more. And that's one example that's true for everyone, that the more and more and more you dive in and chase this pleasure and get there, whatever it may be for you, everyone's different. It's not going to make you happy. It's not going to fulfill you. It's not what you thought it was. The advertisement was a lie. And if this is your number one God and your number one idol, then you're in for a life of disappointment. So, we, we as the church, we are the salt of the world, the preservative of the world. We're here to preserve culture. Preserve what culture? Well, preserve God's culture. We're not here or called to preserve American culture or preserve what was happening in the 1700s or the 1800s or the, you know, preserve what, we're here to preserve God's culture. And um, so we'd better follow his outline and not what seems best in our own minds, which is what the book of Judges, every parable, every story of the Judges ends in the people are doing what seems best in their own minds. So, as the church as the, the salt of the earth, um, we should be the last holdouts in, in society, in culture, preserving God's culture. Yet, I would contend that the church is leading the charge into carnality, into a carnal lifestyle. The church is, is leading the way for the whole watching world to see. And we're going to talk about that today. Because I grew up around Christians various churches, various schools, different denominations, uh, various streams, uh, different ideas. They all believed some things, some different things. They had different ways of operating, yet they all had some things in common. So, what's the first thing that they had in common? They hate family. Well, I'm going to have to explain myself, right? You say, no, 
the, the Christians I know, they don't hate family. Well, firstly, um, what's common, what's popular in today's society is we all need to recover from our upbringing, from our parents, uh, from our, our past trauma. Uh, we need to recover from these things. But more importantly, Christians don't want to have children. We, we don't like children. Why? Because pleasure is our God, and children are friction on that road to pleasure. They're slowing us down. They're, they're life ruiners. They're fun suckers. They're, you know, they're financial nightmares. And we don't want to spend our time making someone else happy. We don't, we have a certain amount of money. We don't want to have to clothe four little nasty bodies snotting all over themselves. We could buy ourselves four times as many clothes. We don't want to go on a quarter of the amount of vacations. We could go on four times as many vacations ourselves and have more fun because children are in the way. I mean, I'll, I'll have to move on. I'll never get to point two. We've all known families that have many kids, at least a few. They're rare in today's society, but we've all known them. And what's told them nearly every single day? You're crazy. You're insane. I could never do that. I mean, I, you can't have ten kids. You're, you're wild for doing that. But that's not for me. No. I'm going to have one, maybe two, maybe three. Very, very few of us having three. Um, and I'm going to stop right there because, or, you know, actually many and most uh, Christian couples right now are, are wanting none. I want none. Uh, there's popular social media trends popping up uh, describing themselves as dinks, D-I-N-K. It means dual income, no kids. And they go on social media and they describe how brilliant their life is, how superior it is to your life. We're, we're dinks. We've maxed our Roth IRA. We're planning our European vacation. We've got these expensive clothes. We stimulate ourselves constantly with the best and finest foods. We worry about nothing. We have everything. We can constantly keep moving and upgrading our houses as, our, as we get promotions at work because we're both working. We're constantly upgrading our technologies and our vehicles, and we worry about nothing because our life is hedonism. I mean, it's about us. It's about pleasure. And yet, no, no, we're still doing God's will. We're still a Christian. I just, I couldn't imagine having kids until I get my finances and my business sorted out. I'll have one when I'm 34. I'll have one when I'm 36, maybe. I'll put it off till then. And that's the popular thing now. Um, it's the popular thing in, in the high school down the corner. No, it's the popular thing in every church that you'll find around here. There's a lot of them. The church is leading the charge into this. Um, it's the popular thing in Christian schools. And the thought that I brought up earlier, is telling these families of, of large, large families, a lot of kids, you're crazy, you're wild for doing that. That same thought has, has seeped down to our children. They picked that up. 
And they think that same thing. That's not for me. I can't do that. I won't do that. It's not fun. It's not easy. No. And um, it's tragic. So we continue on into hedonism. We hate family. So let me flip to Psalm 127. See God's perspective on this. I was on a different verse and I've entirely skipped it. You know, I'm just relying on God, relying on the Holy Spirit to lead me. Maybe I wasn't supposed to read that one. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds a house, its builders labor, labor over it in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays alert in vain. In vain you get up early and stay up late, working hard to have enough food. Yes, he gives sleep to the one he loves. Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord. Children, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons born in one's youth. And happy is the man who has, his, has filled his quiver with them. Such men will never be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the city gate. So, we're, as Christians, we all profess to be seeking the heart and the will of God. Um, so then why do we call children a curse? So, oh, you're crazy, you're wild. You've got so many kids that your life sounds miserable and terrible. I'm going to raise my kids to, hey, you need to stop at one, you know, or grandma ain't helping you out. Because, and let me tell you, even though I'm saying that the church has led the charge into this, uh, there's a lot of evil and bad forces over our society that want the same thing. Um, they want population reduction. They've built, okay, look around the houses in your community. They're all two, three, four bedrooms, maybe. You, you know it's already become this way. If you're a millionaire, you can get that 10-bedroom house and actually do what I'm talking about. We don't have big living areas. They've already confined us and hemmed us in. But they didn't force us there. We walked that direction. We wanted it. We don't speak out against it. This is the way our society is wanting to go. And the church is going right there with it. We have nothing to say. We've fallen into the trap um, set up by our society, set up by the government, where both parents need to be working for us to survive not for us to survive, but for us to have the, the newest technologies and the, all the things that we need uh, because there's planes and there's automobiles now. We can explore Canada. We can explore Mexico. We need to explore Europe at least once in our life or our life is a waste. Um, we need all these new technologies. So both people need to be working. Mothers, evacuate the home. So what will we sacrifice? Will we sacrifice our iPhones and our Mercedes no, we'll sacrifice the few children that we do have. We'll let the government raise them. 
Um, we'll both, we need to pour ourselves into overtime and building the business. We don't want any more kids, and the one or two kids we have, the government can raise them. They will be the, the worthy sacrifice. So our society is decaying more quickly than you imagine. And this is obviously, needless to say, not how God intended things to be. A godless, worthless lifestyle. And, of course, the system that they've set up, as you continue to work overtime, they continue to tax you higher and higher and higher rates. It's a trap. Uh, it's all a lie. Um, it's a lie that you're actually too busy for God and too busy for kids and that you can't afford them. It's, it's a lie. Um, it's been very pervasive in our society and in the church. It's all a lie. Um, let me move on. I'll never get to point two. So, you know what? Skip all this. We're going to point two. The second mark. What's the second mark of a Christian? You know, again, I grew up around Christians, various streams, and they all have a few things in common. The second mark of a Christian is a blessing seeker. They seek the hand and not the face of God, just like the Israelites who stayed in camp while Moses climbed the mountain to meet God. So what does this look like? Again, I, I need to explain myself, otherwise, uh, you know, I'm just talking crazy. So let me explain myself. What does this look like? It looks like Bible illiteracy because it doesn't matter what God has to say. It only matters what you have to say. Uh, you don't care what God thinks, but he needs to care what you think and what you want. Even if you pray, again, we have constant noise and input. Our minds never turn off. I'm finally going to spend some time in prayer, and God, you better listen up. i got about 45 seconds. I'm going to need this and this and this and that and this and that and this and that and this. I'm going to need more technology, more provision. Okay, see you in about three days. It's God needs to hear me out. He needs to give me. We're blessing seekers. So... Let me find where I am. Uh, it also looks like not knowing God in the morning when you wake up. It looks like not knowing God at night before you go to bed. And it looks like not knowing God when you draw near, not knowing Yahweh, when you draw near to the God of pleasure and you're, you're on movies while you're playing a game, while you're exploring social media or you're on that cruise ship or you're at Six Flags and you've forgotten who God is. But the second that crap hits the fan, you turn into a prayer warrior. You're, you don't know who God is. You don't know who God is. But, wait, there's, there might be layoffs at work. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans, plans to prosper you. So what does that lead to? Well, you don't have a relationship with God any more than you have a relationship with your debit card or your bank. Um, what does this lead to? It leads to God isn't Lord. He's not master. Uh, he's your best buddy. He's always ready to bail you out. 
He doesn't need nothing from you. You just need things from him. Um, you don't have to, to die to sin. You don't have to give your life to him. Uh, he just, he gave everything to you. He gave it for you. So you're just frolicking, reaping benefits. Please don't misconstrue what I'm saying. He did give us so much. We're blessed. He is He's a life giver. He fills us. Um, he gives us so many good things. I'm not discounting or discrediting those things. Don't twist my words, but we're, we're not here to seek the hand. We're here to seek the face of God. He knows our hearts. So if I was to, to come home from work every day, and I've known Emily long enough to, to know her heart, and Israel too, he's just uh, three years old, and I know his heart. So I come home every day, and because I love them so much, I bring them gifts. I bring them things. Here's some gifts. I love you guys. And um, they, they're so happy. And one day I come home empty-handed, and they come up, hey, you're here, you're here. What do you have for me? Oh, I, I actually don't have anything today. Uh, all right. You can go take a shower. Uh, maybe tomorrow. I, I already know that they don't love me. They're not seeking my heart. They're seeking what I have to give them. And let me tell you, God knows our hearts better than we know each other's hearts. He knows our hearts better than we know our own hearts. You're not going to fool them. You're not going to get one over on them. So you need to search your own heart and say, wait, is this me? Because if it is, God already knows it's you before you know. Are you only seeking what you can get? Like God's a big cosmic vending machine? And he's not the Lord and Master? Who requires and expects obedience rather than sacrifice? So, let me find where I am again. I'm, I'm wandering away. So, of course, um, God is our best friend. He, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is light and he is love. But if you are the one who, who tries to take away the holiness and the awe and the reverence from God and take the respect out of his name, then that's a fearful thing. And you should find out what is true and repent on your knees before him. Uh, and repent doesn't mean say that you're sorry. It means turn 180 degrees and do something else. Uh, so words, you know, do so much. You can say you're sorry. God will know your heart. He'll see when you turn and do different actions. Faith is your actions. It's your works. Works aren't what saves, but works are what shows what saved you. So turn find out what's true and repent we're meant to seek him with our whole hearts and pursue real and meaningful relationship with him and then and only then can you be appropriately grateful for his hand and all the many things that he's given us when emily and israel are they love me and they've sought my heart and they have real relationship with me then I know that they're grateful and they understand my love when I give them a gift. 
I'm giving it to them because I love them. But they don't love that gift more than they love me. So, what's the third mark of a Christian? It's weakness. Third mark of today's Christians, weakness. So, we all say, and it's true, society is attacking masculinity. It's attacking males right now. Um, but I think that the church has set itself as the number one main enemy against testosterone. Again, I'll have to explain myself. Yes. Testosterone is the prominent ingredient, the prominent hormone in the male body. Uh, it's what makes men men. And the male body was designed by God, right? I'm not talking about carna carnal carnality. I'm talking about biology, something that was made by God. This is the way God designed it to work. Testosterone is what makes men men. Increased muscle mass, deepened voice, bone density, sex drive, and libido, and hairiness. But it's the things that you think of. Well, I was trying to find my place again. I lose it often. The things that you think of, you know, first, first knee-jerk thought when you think of manliness or men, oftentimes. But behaviorally, how does testosterone present? Testosterone behaviorally presents aggressiveness, dominance, sex drive and libido, and competitiveness. So what are your thoughts about those things? Because I'll tell you my thoughts, my opinion. The church has misinterpreted the Bible to see all of those things as sin. To see aggressiveness and dominance as sin, competitiveness as a sin, sex drive and libido, a sin. And I think that's a misinterpretation of the Bible and how God has made us men to be. And of course, this could be its own sermon, as I said. There's a lot to say here and a lot to understand. You have to not twist my, what I'm getting at and understand what I'm saying. So, according to uh, some surveys that I found, there's different figures, different numbers. According to one survey that I found, uh, American congregations are 61% female and 39% male. <laughs> And we've all seen this. We've, you know, women's conferences are much bigger than men's conferences. Women coming to church alone, having to drag the kids and please try to convince the husband to come, but he'll never come with you. Um, is it because we repel men? And is this the reason why? <clears throat> you see, with us setting ourselves as the enemy of these things, Either we neuter our men, or if they won't allow themselves to be neutered, they're repelled. I'm not going to go to that place. You know, they tell me I can't be, I can't be physical and, and strong and aggressive, dominant, but that's inside me. It's burning inside me. And for some reason, we all think it's a sin, but we didn't think it was a sin when David did it. 
and Samuel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, we didn't think it was a sin. We'll still say Daniel and Joseph and Samuel are three of the men that the Bible never says anything against them, never really accounts one of their sins. We know they're not perfect, but it never accounts any of their sins. They were aggressive. They were dominant. They had testosterone. Yet, when if I came in here acting like David or Daniel or Samuel or Joseph, I'd be a filthy sinner in, the, in today's congregation. Testosterone and masculinity and manliness isn't accepted here. We misinterpret love and misunderstand it to turn it into weakness. Even our, our manly men, hey, hey, you need to tone that down. You need to start hugging on people. You need to start just accepting and forgiving, never raising your voice, you know, uh, never taking their offenses into account. If you got into a fist fight in that parking lot over something, then you might be excommunicated. That's, you know, unacceptable. If you're trying to be competitive and dominate, uh, that's not Christian behavior. That's disgusting, carnal behavior. But actually, that's how God designed the male body. And we are neutering and chasing away men. And this could be the reason why. So this manifests itself in softness and weakness. You guys are going to laugh, um, but I really, and y'all know things I like, but we would never imagine taking a, a youth group and teaching them boxing, teaching them fighting, or teaching them hunting, or, or teaching them military, taking them downstairs in the church and teaching them about military tactics, and taking them out with airsoft guns, and teaching them about fighting, and, and doing fitness in the bottom of the church, or doing anything and I mean anything that's been traditionally associated with masculinity for centuries. Any of the things that you can look and point that have been traditionally associated with masculinity since God spun this earth, we would not do with our young men in the church in America. We just would continue to try to make them like the girls. So, and again, speaking of abortion recovery of Alabama, we've got young men, excuse my lingo, humping and dumping. They're, they're leaving. They're retreating. They're, they're going the wrong way. They're, they're out. They're not standing up. They're not manly. They're not confrontational. They're not facing what they've done. They, they have sex drive. They, they do something make a bad choice, a bad mistake, and they run. They're, they're wimpy. They're, they're... I'll never get to point three. I've really got to move on. So sure, the culture has redefined what manhood and what motherhood means. The culture has. And why have we joined them? Why have we led the charge into that and let the culture define what motherhood and manhood means? 
We're supposed to be the salt, preserving what? Preserving God's culture. How God sees motherhood and how God sees manhood. So, we can find out God's idea of manhood starting with how he made our bodies to function. Starting right there. And we don't have to go with the ideas of our culture. Because we were never called to uphold the world's culture, but God's. So, here's my next one. Um, And again, you're going to have to understand what I'm saying. Don't twist my words, okay? Because this is an important one. We are, and this relates to weakness, but we are more pro-life than pro-God. And again, don't, don't misunderstand me here. I'm saying we've been civilized into oblivion according to a perverted definition of love. We're disgusted by our own God and his law. You know, he ordered the death penalty for a lot of things. Again, I've said we hate family and uh, my generation wouldn't be around if there was still the death penalty over disrespecting your parents. We, of course, uh, we're against abortion, 100% against abortion. But we're so pro-life, we can't imagine fighting hurting people, being manly, going to war, uh, many people calling Israel and what they're doing and defending themselves evil because everything should be loving and redemptive and restorative. We should restore these terrorists. We should kill them with kindness. We shouldn't be dominant and defending ourselves. We should find another way. We should all have tasers to tase any robber that breaks into our home instead of killing them. But we're more pro-life, we're weak, more pro-life than we are pro-God. So, they're not going to like me for saying this. Someone's going to come after me, and I don't care. I'm not afraid. Our forefathers fought a revolutionary war over 5 to 7% taxation rate. And we sit like brainless sheeps and let them tax us to death and enslave us, and trap us, and change our lives, and, and take our children captive. And again, we're walking right into it. I can't say that they're forcing it on us. We're walking right into it. We're letting them raise our children. Our forefathers said, this isn't good. We're going to fight a war. We're going to abolish and overthrow this over 5 to 7% taxation rate. And they've got us in this endless loop, a cycle of taxing us and taxing our income, taxing our sales, taxing our properties, taxing everything. And then you have to work overtime just to feel like you're getting ahead. Because again, we're all just pursuing pleasure. Our food isn't good enough. We need to go out to a restaurant three times a week. We need to really stimulate our senses. And woo, this is what life is about. I'm really living now. Well, they're taxing your overtime as fast as you can earn it. But we're more pro-life than pro-God. We would never even imagine giving any of these open Marxists, these people who 
openly want to destroy us and destroy our country, we wouldn't even imagine giving them a black eye in the street. If, uh, if I did that, if a deacon of a church came out and punched one of these people in the face, much less grabbed them and, and forcibly put them in a jail cell, much less any of the things that have been done throughout history and governments being overthrown, then that's not a Christian. That doesn't sound like a deaconly thing to do. Because Christians are supposed to be soft and just turn the other cheek, right? Christians are supposed to be wimpy and weak and just love and forgive me as I destroy you, right? We're just, we're so pro-life, we would, we would never imagine the death penalty for sins. Everything, you know, everything can be turned around, right, with enough time. And we've seen that our society has people demon-possessed, openly evil, openly trying to drag us the wrong way. And we just try to legislate and, no, please stop. Please bring things this way. The way that God had established the law was to protect the Israelites, to protect people from evil and protect the land from sin. And we are embarrassed. We hate our own God. We're disgusted by the things that he's done, by how many people he's killed himself. Disgusted and embarrassed by judgment. Oh, God's not a God of wrath or judgment. We're very pro-life. I couldn't imagine a God who would ever send someone to hell. God doesn't send them to hell. They send themselves to hell. We're very, we're very picky and disgusted by our own God. Um, because I couldn't imagine killing someone, a dead body, a, a black eye, anyone hurt, you know, life is too precious and important. Well, maybe we need to find the heart of God and understand how he sees things and how serious this is and how, as we've sat brainless trying to kill them with kindness, we've been overtaken, overrun to be destroyed. And we're just, we're just going to be weak. We, we're not fighters. We're not confrontational. My legs get to shaking when I get to arguing. I don't, I don't want them to, to confront me. You know, we're weak. So these are some of the things prominent in our version of Christianity none of them being taught to us, yet all of them alive and well in every church around. So let's flip to Matthew 5.13, real quick. In this particular message, you know, I normally read a whole lot. I did not read as much as normal. I just uh, spoke, and I hope that what I said reached somebody. Matthew 5.13 You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. God will do away with this version of Christianity that I've described. Either you get on your own knees and you repent, go in the other direction, or you'll be brought to your knees, you'll be trampled, you'll be thrown out. 
It will be done away with. It's useless. It's good for nothing. You're not preserving anything. Uh, not only are you just as bad as them, you've actually led the charge. Uh, and you like it. You don't like to hear God's way. So, yeah, God's going to dispose of this type of Christianity. Let's be strong. Let's be courageous. Let's be active. Let's understand what the culture has taught us and what we need to remove from our hearts and our lives and understand what God's teaching and say, wait a minute, why have I always thought this? And just, I think it's okay. It's not even anywhere in the Bible. It's just what I was taught. I started to just believe it. I've, I've seen it. I caught it. It wasn't even taught to me. I've caught it. And none of these things are being openly taught. You're just, you're starting to catch them. Uh, more is caught than taught. We have to start to understand God's heart and his way of thinking and his way of doing things. And then, if you're brave enough, go that direction. But see, I've already read the Bible. I know what the Israelites kept doing. I've spoken a few times. I know the heart of man. I know that you, you hear something and you're a hearer of the word and you say, Woo, that was rough. And you're not a doer. And I know 400 people can hear this and I'll be lucky if one repents. And that's the tragedy as we've all been hearing it and seeing it coming. We've been in church for 20 and 30 years and we're still spiritual infants. We can't walk this stuff. We can't talk this stuff. We're just, we're drinking milk. We should be teaching and we're still drinking milk. We can't digest even a spiritual apple. Avocado, pomegranate, whatever you want to say. Um, so I'll be lucky if, if one in 400 hear this and repent. Um, I already know that. But now it's off of my chest. And it's on you. It's in your heart and in your ears to turn. And I don't want to be, you know, some fire and brimstone evangelist, but just saying what's true to turn or to burn. And when you think this stuff's a joke and you think God only has two qualities, uh, blessings and forgiveness, and you think, yeah, well, maybe I'll be just a door greeter in heaven, but at least I'll get there with the smell of smoke on me. It's so much more serious. And it's eternity. And if you don't understand the gravity of what I'm saying, then it's actually because you don't have faith and you didn't believe in the first place that there's a huge God out there bigger than you can imagine that created everything, that requires obedience and requires relationship and has called your heart. And thank God he's provided a way for you to be reconciled to him through Jesus Christ and faith in him. You can go down that narrow road where few are going to be and few are going to make it. You could get off the Broadway to destruction where you're just sitting there on your phone, on social media, killing your brain cells until eventually you just die. And if you think, maybe next time Seth preaches, I'll repent. 
don't wait. You don't know the day or the hour. And God knows your heart. And you're thinking you can squeeze as much sin and as much pleasure out of this life and then repent when you're 89 on your deathbed. God is a great and awesome king and his name will be feared amongst the nations. And he will not accept your lame, worthless sacrifice. He's going to accept a costly and valuable sacrifice from a servant that truly seeks after and cares about his heart. Some of you got shaken by this. 